no. No, 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 man. No, 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 no,
or, or anything like that. So yeah. you're, you're in an yeah. okay place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so is the, that our uh, content warning? That kind is our of, content kind of, kind of. Do we get a little cred that I'm just hetero presenting? This that? is, yeah, 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 you know, okay. that's fair. That's <laughs> yeah. fair. So, um, so actually, uh, speaking of hetero men, we're here to talk about Tolkien. Yes. <laughs> Right. Uh, so there's in the com- an intro. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> the, in, in some might say the archetype of uh, dead old straight white guys. Um, one of them. One of them. And, and yet, yeah. sort of complex uh, for some ways that we'll get into now. Yeah. Uh, so um, so we were talking about uh, what to do for this episode. And we decided, you know, Ed and I are huge fans of Tolkien. Um, maybe Barry and Damien are honestly, that's ancillary to the point because it's about our love of Tolkien at this point. Um, <laughs> but this idea in particular of allegory, because yeah. well, Ed, why don't you describe the, the pop reference of uh, Tolkien and allegory? Well, you know, the, the thing is that um, there, there are a couple of levels on which uh, everybody looks at, at Tolkien's life and uh, his experiences. And then they look at the Lord of the Rings. Um, and I'm mostly going to be talking about the books, although some of the stuff in the movies is, is by, you know, virtue of necessity going to, going to kind of come in, but you know, you look at, you look at what he wrote and you look at his life experience and you're like, well, okay, obviously. And this was critics during his lifetime saying this, well, this is very clearly a Christian allegory because he's Catholic. So how could he write anything else? Um, and you know, then you also look at a lot of the overarching themes in, in his work and his very clear distaste for industrialism, uh, his intense dislike of technology. You look at the things that he wrote outside of the books, uh, in his correspondence to other people talking about how deplorable he, he considered basically everything that happened in world war II, uh, and, and the development of, of nuclear weaponry. And you're like, well, you know, obviously this is also, this is, this is simultaneously or separately, depending on which school of critique you come from, this is an allegory for world war one. And what I, what I find really, uh, remarkable is that all his life, he insisted with, with, I mean, just vicious force all his life that no, I didn't write an allegory that was, Mm -hmm. that's, that's not what this is. And reducing it to an allegory is, I I think he would probably argue that it's an insult to his faith uh, and, and kind of an insult to his work, but he'd be more, he'd be more concerned about an insult to, to his faith. Um, And, and he, he was, it was like one of his buttons was, was to say that, that his work was an allegory and he insisted to, to the end of his days that it wasn't one. But then, you know, you read it and you realize that, like, you don't always have control over what it is you're writing about. And, mm-hmm. and rule number one on, on A Geek History of Time at, over the course of the 150 plus episodes that we've done, we've, we've developed a number of, of rules on the podcast. And rule number one is that authorial intent don't mean fuck all. Like it, it is, it is pointless. It's there. Yep. Once you create something and put it out into the world there are there are levels on which interpretation should probably take authorial intent into account like if we're mm-hmm. if we're looking at whether somebody like needs to be put up on the historical wall of shame then we should probably look at authorial intent or take it into account at least somewhat but by the same token if we're just looking at what uh-huh. does this work mean 
you know, then, then the meaning is subjective. The meaning is, is whatever it is anybody else takes out of it. Yeah. And you're, what, what are you smirking? You about got the there? first pun in. I'm yeah, just proud of you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. By the first Tolkien. Because we're going to talk about his son later, but right now we're yeah, talking okay. about first Tolkien. Yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah. Well done. Which his son's name Him. was J.R.R. Tolkien Jr., right? So no. J.R.R. Tolkien Jr. Yes. That's. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Since I was the one to make the first pun, I didn't get to say this, but good day, sir. <laughs> you get nothing. <laughs> Uh, it, I think we made it a whole five minutes in. Uh, yeah, before. yeah, remarkably enough. Yeah. Um, this is good. So, <laughs> so, so, but it, okay. So let's let's unpack because there's a lot to to dissect yeah, here. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. There's, there's um, a lot to pull apart. Let's let's uh, start with a little bit of context. Who yeah. Tolkien was in his time, right? So we have a young man grew up in England, uh, served in World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Which we all know to be the sexiest of the world wars. Right. Um, oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I would, I would solidly that's, agree with that. Yeah, that's where they came up with the term trench running. I mean, it, that's <laughs> want to turn off your filters at work for that. But yeah, it's, it's there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I didn't lose you a sponsorship. So or, so earlier when we talked about like what the rules are for discourse. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So number yeah, of puns per minute. You need to watch. Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> come on. T- Two, two puns per three minutes. That's, <laughs> but um, I banked six minutes. So, damn it, Damien. Listen. <laughs> so, you owe us a break. You owe us- <laughs> <laughs> That's Kit Kat. That's totally different. Oh, no. <laughs> we shouldn't have noted uh, at the top that uh, Damien is also a comedian. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, I run a pun tournament uh, yeah. called Capital Punishment out here in Sacramento. So, it's, it's, just baked into what I do. Just so. you're just reaffirming what Fox News has told me about the West Coast being godless. So yes, um, in the, but okay. So going back to trenches. So uh, Tolkien serves in in uh, World War One. Uh, is yeah. I understand it. That's when he starts sketching out the very first inklings of no pun intended. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. That was not a pun. That was not a pun. <laughs> He would later yeah. become a member of the group called the Inklings. But, the Inklings, yes. Yeah, but that's where he start, first started to sketch out, you know, the the beginnings of Middle Earth uh, and that it, kind of idea. It, it, yes, um, if depending on depending on where you want to draw the the roots of of Middle Earth to, mm-hmm. uh, because he actually he started uh, a little bit earlier than that uh, with with some stuff because of course he was a linguist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his, his academic background uh, and the majority of his adult life he spent as an academic, um, you know, he, he was uh, teaching old English. And so he had a very uh, deep and abiding interest mm-hmm. in and love for uh, old Norse uh, mythology and the Eddas and uh, very early English poetry and Beowulf was a big thing and all that. Right. And so he started essentially writing like Norse mythology fanfic uh, mm-hmm. you know, before then, but the, the first thing that we can point to as being recognizably something like middle earth is around the time, uh, that, that he was in world war one. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say off the top of my head that it was, uh, during his convalescence, mm-hmm. uh, after he'd been in France and, uh, been injured, I believe he'd been gassed and he came back to England to recover and he was on the invalid list. Mm-hmm. And while he was recovering with, nothing else to do with his time that's where he started writing i want to say it was the beginnings of baron and luthien okay which uh, which is a great story just because that is the nerdiest thing 
ever oh, is, yeah. to, <laughs> is to write a love story about you and your wife uh, yeah. and dress it up in, in fan fiction effectively. And when we talk about oh, yeah. he was, when we say that he was greatly influenced by like, you know, Norse myths and things like that, uh, as the old saying goes, um, good writers borrow, great writers steal. Old boys oh. stole <laughs> prolifically. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Like, yeah. like a, like a mob. In, and I was going to say informant, but like a mob agent, like he yeah, yeah. just ripped everything off the walls. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, so he, he does all this and he is, so he serves in world war one. Uh, he is his son, Christopher served in world war two, I believe. Right. Uh, and, more than one of his sons, actually, he had, yeah. he had okay. a couple of boys and I don't remember which one of them. One of his sons was actually in the RAF during world war two. Hmm. And I think Christopher was in the infantry, if I'm remembering right. I don't mm -hmm. know if Christopher actually went overseas, mm -hmm. but I know he was he was in the army. And so yeah, he saw all of that going on. Yeah, yeah. So he, and so even more than just the personal investment of a person in England at World War II, he obviously had you know a, a children who were involved in it and that much more paying that much more close attention. Certainly working his nerves that much more with all that uh, investment, but. Um, he, again, we also referenced that he was Catholic and not just Catholic. He was like super pro Vatican one Catholic because Vatican two oh, rolls around intensely traditionalist Catholic. Yeah. Like I, I, I genuinely think you can only be as Catholic as Tolkien was if you were Catholic in England mm -hmm. specifically before Vatican two, mm -hmm. because also, he also had a love of language. Well, yeah. So you go to Vatican II, and suddenly you're allowing the Mass in the Vulgate. That's mm -hmm. if you're gonna if you're gonna be a linguist in England, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you're gonna yeah. be upset about that. So yeah, and and I'm I'm sure probably part of his issues with with Vatican II had to do with his his intrinsic love of older languages, mm -hmm. and probably mm -hmm. uh, his kind of intrinsic belief. Uh, because he was such a traditionalist and because of, of his, his upbringing uh, and, and uh, you know, he, he was, you know, an orphan who was largely raised by a priest who was a, a friend of his mother's, who was his biggest uh, father figure and was his literal father figure after his mm -hmm. mother died. Um, and so his, his emotional attachment to the Latin mass was probably off the charts. Yeah. And that uh, was that was the reason I wasn't aware of that, but that is a, a, a really salient point. <clears throat> and so, just taking some rip from the headlines kind of stuff about yeah. the Tolkien books, like when you think about trench warfare, and then you think about like the siege of Isengard, right? Oh yeah, where the Ents lay waste to Isengard and uh, and Orthanc and uh, Saruman's forces, which are very heavily industrialist, um, are just being torn down. And so I'm I'm thinking in my mind, if you're serving. In World War One, if you're in the trenches and your uh, artillery is your worst enemy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, combined with someone like him who had a love for the agrarian and the pastoral and the outside, and seeing what like, you know, I don't know that he was at that he would have seen what Verdun was like, right, in France, but yeah. knowing what was being done to the land as a as oh, a yeah. byproduct of this absolutely had to have left an impression. And then going back to things like. Um, so in Catholicism, we're funny about the ways in which God does or does not intervene in the world. Yes. Um, uh, some might say, uh, capricious, uh, some might, might. Some might. Calvinists would Calvinist, well, yeah. <laughs> Calvinists would say a lot of things. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
Oh, and oh. that's one of our oh. one of our rules is Damien can trigger Ed anytime he mentions Calvinists. Yeah. <laughs> Don't sorry. <laughs> sorry, I need to take a deep breath. Cal- Calvinist okay. theology. What if we're just oh. a pile of <laughs> and then there's a magical napkin on top of us, and then the napkin goes away um, once we're dead. That's that's sorry. Sorry, I shouldn't make jokes. I do belong sure to. Should. I belong to the world's largest unified cult. Well, <laughs> you guys have like a lot of real estate, so it's okay. Though. It's, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's true. Punching down. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you know. Okay, no, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hit back on the punching down thing about Calvinists. Um, I no. <laughs> look at look you. at literally look at literally every american born uh uh religious movement since the second great awakening and no we are not punching down on calvinists they're all calvinists with fancy names it's calvinism <laughs> with extra steps like no <laughs> no uh that's so, that's scans and i'm sorry. an expert on that uh, yeah, i was yeah. ra- i was raised mormon so yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> that's calvinism with extra steps <laughs> areas are we added a lot yeah. yeah, Calvinism yeah. with genocide. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know what they say about marketing? You got to be able to do it to scale. And honestly, it's, <laughs> it's the only way to go by it. Um, I knew having y'all on was going to get us canceled. I knew it. <laughs> I just felt it in my bones. You could but, have not had me on with Ed's thing. I mean, <laughs> so. So, but one of the things that we, that part of the Catholic faith uh, understands about the way in which God operates is that like the Holy Spirit is a guiding force, Um, but it is not a, it is not like a, to go back to Norse mythology, like a thunder and lightning kind of thing, right? With Thor or anything like that. It is a nudging force. And so like I was talking to a buddy of mine um, who was really upset that Gandalf did not just throw fireballs everywhere. And he's like, why? Why isn't Gandalf literally just setting everything on fire? I said, well, I would suggest it's because Gandalf is the Holy Ghost. Like that's a lot of where that influence comes from because he is there to nudge and guide and make sure that humans can stand on their own, which is very much lining up with a lot of the perspective of how the divine intercedes in the yeah. in our world. This yeah, also I, gets at the argument that people do about like why didn't like Vince Gill and uh, Don Henley and Joe Walsh like just give Gandalf a ride? to you know mount doom and of course ed said it trying in such a way. to bait me and i'm not <laughs> going to rise to it yet <laughs> yes and ed said, it in such a, ed said it in such a way that my son ran around the house repeating it for months and months afterwards uh and apparently it had to do would you like to quote yourself do, do you, or you want you, me to I, what do you prefer I, I love hearing you say it. Okay. The yeah. eagles represent the grace of God. You ignorant. F- yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my, that's because, because you know, often, we're, we're talking. Oh, go ahead. I have often associated Joe Walsh with divine mercy. Well, um, yeah. And, and, well, and I'm one of them is not. And he's a theory being. <laughs> he's a deacon. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right there. Yeah, yeah, it pretty much is. Yeah, there is there is a, a thing around here though in my neck of the woods of taking like old classic rock songs and turning them into Bible hymns. So, for example, like my mom grew up hearing uh, covers of, um, I almost said parodies, but covers of uh, "Take It to the Limit" by the uh-huh. Eagles. Only in oh, church no. it was "Take It to the Lord," um, and so you know she's that a child. Of, that that doesn't that doesn't track. Like this was know, in the, it, 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 it was the seventies. 
It does if you're pushing abstinence, because that will dry everyone up. Like, <laughs> right then, and there. Yeah, not wrong. Oh my god! Wow. Okay. So you know the the idea of Gandalf as the Holy Spirit, I I think is, I'm sure somebody at some point has has written some level of critique of of the work that that brings that up. And, you know, I, what we what we have come around to on, on our podcast when we talk about this kind of stuff is, you know, with Tolkien and, you know, the elements of his work that are, you know, very clearly coming from his Catholicism. Or when we look at Heinlein and we look at, well, he was a naval officer specifically in engineering and, and technological stuff. So, yeah, obviously that's going to be part of what he writes. I, I think the case is really strong that Tolkien couldn't help but write an allegory. Like mm-hmm. he 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 got violently angry or as close to violent as he ever got. He was a very mild-mannered individual. But but he got he got worked up with people saying that he wrote an allegory, but like he couldn't help it. Um, you know, Gandalf is obviously an angel um and and an agent of the Holy Spirit. Um, the eagles are, as I've already said, representative of the grace of God. They, they show up when you don't expect them. You can't count on them ever, you know, but I, I have the job as a middle school history teacher, uh, of explaining to some of my kids, depending on their grade level about the reformation. And, and what that means is I, I have to spend a certain amount of time explaining to them. Okay. So before this event we call the reformation this this is how god worked and and if you're catholic this is still largely how how this does work is um you spend your life trying trying desperately to do the right thing all your life and you you put in all this effort and all this effort and all this effort you are never going to be able to earn your way into heaven you you can't do it you can't earn your way into heaven however you do the works and then god reaches down and pulls you up. Okay. Now, Martin Luther, because of his background, um, basically decided works don't mean anything. Um, you're, you're, you're a sinner. You're never going to be worthy. And it's grace alone. Sola gratia. Um, and so, and so grace just reaches all the way down and picks you up. And, and the Eagles very much represent a Catholic outlook on the idea of the grace of God. You have put in all of this work and you have done all of the sacrificing and you are literally on the verge of death and there is nothing that is going to save you. You are no doomed. And then the clouds break and here are the Eagles. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter like the attitude you carry toward it either. No, like you could have just the most violent disposition or I don't know, a peaceful, easy feeling. And you know God won't let you down. Okay, that one hurt. <laughs> I like to I like to think that the um, I like to think that the Battle of Pelennor Fields was um, was Tolkien having been influenced by Desiderius Erasmus, who, for those that don't know, is a 16th century theologian who is most famously known for saying, "quote Fight me, you elitist cowards." Yes. Um, Yes. And and that undergirds just to, uh, uh, that undergirds a lot of Aragorn's story arc. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, big big yeah. 
I'm sure that, that, that I had never made that connection before right now. And it totally makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yep. Yeah. Again, for, because I wouldn't expect anyone to know um, uh, Erasmus was a, 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 was a Dutch. It was a Dutch yeah. um, a humanist philosopher who basically said, we're wasting times with these books. You cowards get out of your ivory towers and put your feet on the ground. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now I like to think he was a fighter anyway, oh, yeah. but, but, and, and again, we've already covered this ground of Tolkien didn't think that he was writing an allegory. Yeah. And he, he did say, I think in a, in a letter to one of his editors that, you know, I can't deny that there are things that are showing up here, that this is mm-hmm. a Catholic tale. Right. Um, yeah. And to that point though, I think part of the, the polysemic nature of the text and yeah. to throw around a fancy word, polysemic meaning the uh, it is open to interpretation from a variety of angles and views is that it has that kind of resonance, but it isn't exclusive to it. Right. Cause yeah. there are people who absolutely get a variety of things out of the materials um, that don't have anything to do with uh, aspects of Catholic theology or, or even environmentalism necessarily. I mean, a lot of folks oh, yeah. for, for a lot of folks, the redeeming quality is the matter of, excuse me, is the matter of like the emotional intimacy among male companions. Yeah. Um, that there's a lot of emotional depth there. Uh, and that, or even maybe the subversion of story types and tropes in the sense of Sam being the hero. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and Frodo, uh, Frodo as the hero and, and Sam mm-hmm. to, to a similar degree, both of them being nonviolent heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, both of them uh, does killing spiders count as nonviolent? Well, you know, I mean, occasionally you, you got to punch a Nazi, like it just, yeah. uh, sure. you know, <laughs> happens, but you know, um, and I, I, I think, I think the, the, the point I'm trying to make applies more to Frodo, um, in that, um, he, he is, he is a, he is a nonviolent hero figure. There, there is not really any point at which Frodo, goes on the offensive he he is protected by uh his uncle's mithril shirt um and he carries sting early on but the only the the only companion i mean of of between him and sam sam is the one who actually like you know goes out and gets done with sting uh going Mm -hmm. against shalob stabby 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 Mm -hmm. um against you know literally a daughter of the but you know a, a first generation descendant of the mother of all spiders when you when you get into the extended mythologies, mm-hmm. like oh, so he just killed the spider equivalent of like an ancient dragon. Like Shelob's mother, consu- Shelob's mother, Ungoliant, consumed this night sky and stars. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Essentially, what a disappointment. Shelob must cast. have been right. <laughs> right. And then a hobbit sticks up with like three d six sneak attack damage. And yeah. Just bam. Well, yeah. I, I don't. I don't even know. I you know trying to stat any of this stuff out is like I I don't no I don't know how it worked. Yeah. They had and a very forgiving I, game master. Can I clearly. interrupt you there? Because you yeah. you brought up the Frodo and Sam thing um, yeah. in in our podcast, and I loved what you did to talk about that because, I, if I recall correctly, you said Frodo was a stand-in for Tolkien, and mm-hmm. Sam was a stand-in for, frankly, the people that he idealized. Yes. Um, can, do you mind just yeah. jumping so, that in a little? Bit? Oh yeah. So it's really important on on the level of it being an unintentional allegory of World War One or or of the emotional damage done by world war one to the people who, who participated in it. Um, Tolkien was an officer. Tolkien was a Lieutenant. If I'm remembering correctly, I don't, I don't know whether he got promoted beyond that point, but as a man coming from a gentleman's background, uh, when he joined the service, he got a commission and he was an officer. 
And so he was put in the position of being in command of men who were from more uh, working class backgrounds than his own. And uh, he was put in the position of having to give them orders from which many of them did not come back. And it profoundly affected him um, as it must for anybody who's ever in that position. And he responded to that by idealizing the common men of England who, who showed up and did what they had to do in order to defend queen and country and then went home and went back to, you know, being gardeners and, you know, Mm -hmm. coal miners and, you know, industrial workers and whatever. And so Sam being the hero, I think is a real tell for Tolkien's view of himself Hmm. and his own position in the kind of defining conflict of his life. When, when he was called to stand up and do this moral thing and make the sacrifice, he could not have done it and he would not have succeeded without the Sam's who were, were under his command. Mm -hmm. And in his view, they were, they were the heroes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's particularly interesting when thinking about um because i i have read the lord of the rings years ago when i was a much younger man but i go back from time to time and like read excerpts from them, that kind of thing and one yeah. that stood out to me was sam's observation i think in it's i think it's in um it might be in two towers it might be in um the return of the king but where sam observes a dead uh i think it's a dead haradrim um, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the races of men that fights for, for Sauron. It's either the Harajim or, or an Ishaling. And he yeah. says, he, he wonders to himself, was he really such a bad man or, or was he just caught up in something that was beyond his understanding? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and, I, and that's a moment of radical empathy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it helps kind of mitigate the you know, uh, subconscious Victorian racism involved in, you know, all of the tropes that are involved there. Um, which, you know, is, is also part of, part of the legacy that, that, you know, as, as somebody who loves the work, it's, it's something that, you know, we, we kind of have to wrestle with is that's there, you know, there's a uh, quote that Tolkien has about, um, about, uh, Hitler where he says, or he, he, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something along the lines of, you know, he's a, a demented little man. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he is taking the great Northern spirit of, uh, of Europe and con- uh, perverted into something, you know, mm-hmm. terrible and twisted. And there's, there's just that line of like the great Northern spirit. I'm like, hmm, yeah. Oh boy. All right. Mm, listen, yeah. My yeah. Guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, John, John, can I call you John? <laughs> love your work can we sit down and have a talk for a moment here about unconscious bias mm-hmm. can we can we we're making some assumptions here that maybe need mm-hmm. to be reflected upon can we can we do that for a minute yeah you know and it, he did he was at least open to critique because he did basically reinvent the dwarves um, oh yeah uh for so like if anyone's not aware and and we'll head towards the end of the episode with this note um you know, Tolkien drew heavily from Norse mythology and also uh, his understanding of uh, Jewish culture 
uh, to create the dwarves. The names, the the physical appearances are all lifted out of light Norse mythology. But the uh, the warrior diasporic people who are uh, you know artisans and crafters and uh, creators that's straight out of you know stories about the Jews and things like that. Well, uh, also, and, and, mm-hmm. I, I have to I have to interject here. He was mm-hmm. a linguist. Yes. And the structure of the Dwarvish language oh, yeah. is Semitic. Oh yeah, it's based on Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, over by half. And yeah, and then he, at some point, um, it's pointed out to him that he's like, you know, these are kind of anti-Semitic tropes a bit. Like you, you made, yeah. you made Thorin go gold crazy. Um, yeah, yeah and, that's a little problematic <laughs> there. My and so actually, taking that idea of like Thorin's obsession with the Arkenstone and the Hort in in the yeah. Hobbit. And then looking at how Gimli addresses the matter in, I think it's the fellowship or it's mm-hmm. the fellowship because they're going through the mines. And he says, yeah. you know, we don't carve stone for the sake of owning the precious. We enjoy the beauty and wish to see, you know, wish that everyone else could see it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a paradigm shift. Uh, yeah. If we're talking about the perspective of how the dwarves see things from one book to the other. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things I appreciate about him, and this is not to give a pass to any of the stuff that, that is really unfortunate in the books, but he was at least someone who was open to grappling with his own ideas. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I think if, if he had lived longer and lived into a time where those tropes were being interrogated we probably would have, I, I like to think anyway, that because of his, essentially, I'm going to say his intellectual honesty. And, and I think that's, that's kind of at the core of it, his intellectual honesty and his uh, spiritual honesty, for lack of a better word, I, th- I would hope that he would be open to growing and grappling with those things on a, on a continuous basis. If the times in which he, you know, lived and, and eventually died, you know, he, he passed away, you know, in the, in the seventies. And so like at the time he died, people weren't really grappling yet with right. so many of the issues that are there in his work. Um, I think the, the kind of feminist underpinning problems with, with, you know, the, the roles of women in, in his work, uh, you know, and Eowyn being kind of a, a token uh, character, mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was just beginning to be something that people were, were talking about in even, his work, even at its time with his representation of women, it was still pushing a lot of boundaries to have, Oh yeah, you know, like when, um, at the same time, you know, if we were to say, take a look at the children of Huron, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, Turin and Iniel who have an incestuous relationship, but that yeah, whole well, book's, that yeah, whole book's a th- Greek tragedy. It, yeah, it, it literally it is. Uh, that's that's very clearly him him you know reaching across a couple of uh, a couple of aisles in the library and, and going straight to you know uh, Oedipus. But I'm going to change a couple of the relationships around. No, no, it's not his mom. She's his sister. It's it's not as bad. Like it's eye opening. Yeah, it's yeah. still tragic. It's, but, it's still a curse. It's still uh, bad. They still all die. <laughs> but, but but it's not quite as gross, right? It's, right. It's it's my favorite of his works. Um, that I've read in entirety. I should point that out because okay. I've never finished the Silmarillion and probably never will for the same reasons. I won't finish the old Testament. Okay. That's and, fair. <laughs> that's fair. Um, that's fair. but it is, you know, yeah, absolutely. Anyway. Um, 
I was just trying to say, I was trying to find a way to work in the fact that, you know, this uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings would be a masterpiece if only he had Father Christmas arrive with uh, weapons to give to child soldiers. But that's <laughs> that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the one thing Lewis got right, in my opinion. I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like Lion Jesus? <laughs> well, okay, there's a, there's a cartoon going around on Facebook right now that is one of my absolute favorite things. And it's... Um, you know, the, the difference between J.R.R. Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis. And, and the first top panel is is some college student asking Tolkien, uh, Professor Tolkien, is is Lord of the Rings really, uh, you know, an allegory for your experiences in World War One? And Tolkien says, says to this kid, uh, no, it is not. And if you continue saying that, I shall call the police. <laughs> and then in the panel underneath it is C.S. Lewis uh, sitting at his desk writing with a forlorn look on his face. And in a thought bubble, it says, if even one reader does not understand that the lion is Jesus, I will kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and that's the two of them, like in a nutshell, Mm -hmm. like it's perfect. I also like the fact that uh, I, I believe that Tolkien immortalized Lewis as uh, tree as Treebeard. Yes, yeah. it's like it's my it's my yeah. best and dearest friend. He's loud as shit, and he yeah. goes on forever. <laughs> <laughs> I know how he feels. Home, <laughs> <laughs> home, you. All right. So, uh, so on that note, let's uh, let's pull it to a close. Um, so. Where uh, where can folks find y'all? Well, collectively, uh, we can be found on our podcast, A Geek History of Time, uh, where we take history, where we take nerdery, uh, anything geeky, you you pick it. Uh, although we we tend to uh, have a, a tendency to concentrate an awful lot on wrestling, uh, and <laughs> uh, and comic books are probably our two our two biggest uh, overall categories. No, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. See, that's the other half is we take something out of nerdery and we connect it to real world history uh, because we're both social studies teachers. um, And and that's the the other thing that we're both like hyper fixated on is like, oh, my God, I've seen all of this before, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and and so it's our kind of our way of of coping with that. So uh, that's that's our podcast, A Geek History of Time. Uh, Damien, you want to tell them where they can find that? Because I yeah, always... uh, you can find that on the Apple podcast as well as Stitcher. I think we've pulled ourselves from Spotify for reasons. Uh, but uh, Stitcher and uh, the Apple podcast, you can find it there. You could also find it on our website. If you don't want to go through one of those services and subscribe, you can just go to geekhistorytime.com. And you can scroll through. And I mean, I say it's a buffet. You come for the asparagus. Maybe you stay for the soft serve. It's up to you what you do. I just ask that if you listen to an episode, make sure it's the first of a series. Like if you start on an episode three of, of you know, the Tolkien one, you're a monster. What are you doing? You need to start with <laughs> one. Like yeah. this, mm. we're trying to have a civilization here, people. Um, but Social uh, contract so, has to be observed. Exactly. Yes. It must. Yes. It must. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find that. Uh, you can find uh, myself at Duh Harmony. There's two H's in the middle of that um, on Twitter and Instagram, uh, as well as Duh Harmony one on uh, the TikTok. Uh, I, where I, I have a hashtag going, how I torture Ed. And it's just some of the most brilliant wordsmithing you'll ever see. He'll never it's admit puns. it, but there you go. It's yes. puns. And Ed, <laughs> where can they he's, find he's you? Trying, he's trying to trap you all. It's puns. <laughs> where can um, they find you? Uh, I can be found I can be found on TikTok as Mr. Underscore Blaylock. 
Um, I don't post an awful lot. Uh, the biggest thing I have right now is uh, my own opinion about how George Lucas gave us the, the worst possible interpretation of the Jedi Council that like anybody could have come up with. We have episodes on that, by the way. Oh, we do. Yeah. Oh, uh, several of them. Uh, because I'm a sword nerd uh, outside of you know everything else. And uh, I can also be found as E.H. Blaylock on Twitter. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for dropping by the office hours. And uh, we'll catch you next week. All right, folks. Oh, wait, I forgot. You can find me at Dr. underscore C on TikTok. <laughs> G.A. Cruz underscore PhD uh, on Twitter and Instagram. And you can email questions, comments, concerns, and just, I don't know, general life advice, I guess, to G.A. Cruz PhD at gmail.com. All right, folks. We'll catch you next week. Bye.